Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the takeout ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent... Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. You know, ladies and gentlemen, there are times when the location where we shoot this show and the guest really mesh. And I'm happy to say that's exactly what's happening this week. Ben's Chili Bowl is a very famous restaurant in Washington, D.C., It's an institutional restaurant. It's full of resilience. It's deeply embedded in the community of Washington, D.C. And I've always wanted to bring the show here, but I didn't want to come here just major coming in to Ben's Chili Bowl. I wanted to come here when someone who had a real lived experience with Ben's Chili Bowl was important to them and their actual lives, not just major hanging out, trying to gain some sort of rep from (laughs) Ben's Chili Bowl. So that's why I'm so glad... Ayanna Presley is with us. She's a congresswoman from the 7th District of Massachusetts. Ayanna, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. It's good to be with you, Major. Tell me about your experience in Ben's Chili Bowl. Oh, so many. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, uh, you know, prior to my election to Congress, uh, and even prior to my election on the Boston City Council, I was an aide for 16 years, uh, four in the House for uh, former Congressman Joseph P. Kennedy II, and 11 with United States Senator John Kerry. And so when I was an aide uh, on the Hill in my 20s, I mean, of course, we worked very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but every now and then we would have a respite and allow ourselves to exhale after a hard week. Uh, and Ben's is where we would come. 
and uh, you know I'm 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 personally obsessed with their their strawberry cake. I know people come for the the the, the half smokes and, right. and the chili, yep. um, but I'm a cake connoisseur. That's my thing. So uh, I, I love the strawberry cake. But you know also it's important um, if Black lives uh, really are to matter, then uh, Black wealth must matter. Black joy must matter. Black culture must matter. And all of that um, is representative and, and manifest here uh, in the walls of Benz. Um, I think it's now uh, 85 plus years um, that their doors have been open, multiple locations, uh, a black family owned business uh, uh, founded by the Ali family. Uh, and as a legislator, um, because I have my own personal connection in hospitality, having worked in waitstaff for a number of years, um, I'm very passionate about the role of, of food and that it plays in, in building community. And uh, We're passionate about food here at the takeout, <laughs> let yes, me tell you, for sure. And also, restaurants are just critical social and economic anchors. And so it's great to be here in this institution. This is about uh, black history, mm-hmm. black pride. Yep black resilience, but again, economic justice, black wealth. And that's something that I, I organize, mobilize, and, and legislate on every single day. Mm-hmm. And just so you understand, ladies and gentlemen, we're at a satellite location of Ben's Chili Bowl. There's a very famous location on U Street, part of the U Street corridor in Washington, D.C. And one of the things that's most important about Ben's Chili Bowl's history is during the catastrophic riots in Washington, D.C. in 1968, it was one of the few businesses along the U Street corridor, A, that stayed open, and B, this is very poignant, sold to black residents traumatized by the riots and the white police and firefighters who were dealing with the effects of the riots. They both, they all came to Benz. And it was a symbol then, it's a symbol now. That's right. Of what can be achieved what can happen in times of crisis, and how people can still come together. And that's why Ben's is resonant in this city and why I'm so happy to be here. And I guarantee you we will take this show to the famous U Street Corridor stop uh, in the near, ter- near term. Um, Congresswoman Presley is a member of the squad. I want to ask her what she thinks about that, if that's a term she embraces. She's also been described as a progressive institutionalist. So let's break those down. The squad and progressive institutionalists. Do you embrace either or both of those? Well, in, in my opinion and definition of the squad, mm-hmm. uh, the squad is big. Right. Uh, it is certainly uh, bigger than any uh, handful of progressive uh, members of Congress, mostly uh, women of color, progressive members of Congress. Is anyone doing the work of building a more equitable and just society? Uh, so the squad is big. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, just the four. Uh, Absolutely not. Okay. And, and, and it actually, um, just a, a quick backstory on that. Myself, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, Representative uh, Omar and Tlaib, uh, each of us represented historic first. I'm the first uh, person of color to represent the House of Representatives, to represent the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in the House of right. Representatives in its 230-year history. And so each, each of us represented uh, historic first. And um, so we had been asked to do an interview uh, because we were each first. Right. And at the end of that interview, upon our, and this was our first time meeting one another, it was at freshman orientation for the Congressional Progressive Caucus. We took a photo, and um, we just hashtagged it, um, squad goals or something like that. 
and and it went viral. And I think the reason why it went viral is because it was a deeply resonant sort of uh, political and cultural inflection point. Um, it was a it was a signal of progress. Um, you know, historically, uh, we have been underrepresented as women and people of color representing marginalized uh, communities in the corridors of power and around policy and decision-making tables. And so, um, again, the squad is big, um, but that's where that name came from. It was just we used it in that one hashtag, and it went, ri- it went viral because it did speak to so many people. And let's be honest, in some places in America that was celebrated and embraced, and other places of America that was regarded as something threatening and troublesome and possibly irritating, right? Look, I've been a black, well, I was a black girl, but I've been a black woman for most of my life. And so I'm used to identity and representation being uh, weaponized. Um, This is, uh, this representation having made greater strides in leadership parity uh, in the halls of government. And of course, we do have unprecedented representation right now, but we still don't have parity. And that's a disservice to everyone. So any strides that we make in having a more representative government benefits everyone. If you are addressing, if ideas are being championed, if solutions are being developed through a completely monolithic and homogenized prism, it's to a disservice to everyone. We need a diversity of perspective, opinion, and thought. Uh, in government. And so I think uh, this is something to be celebrated, but again, uh, it's not a new phenomenon that people would seek to weaponize uh, identity. And, and as the saying goes, and I know you've heard this, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. That's right. Yes, that's right. And being yeah. at the table changes things. Absolutely, it does. I mean, to me, that's the true benefit of having a representative government. Uh, and I do. And that was your experience on the Boston City Council. Absolutely. Your arrival and the agendas. And the items you brought there changed the way the city council functioned. Well, that's generous. Based on my reading of it. That's generous. But what I will say is uh, being the first a woman of color, first black woman to serve on the Boston City Council when I was elected in 2009. Uh, and in fact, that was the... Uh, I had broken a hundred-year-old ceiling in that regard. There's a professor um, who previously was on... Um, a part of the faculty at UMass Boston, uh, Dr. Carol Hardy Fanta, and she said, uh, when women of color break electoral ceilings, they're not glass, they're concrete. Uh, So I broke that concrete ceiling in 2009, and I think the best way to show the impact of that victory is in our first budget cycle, every agency and department that came before me since I had run on a platform of championing gender-specific and responsive programming and policies, I asked them about the girls. And their answers were really monosyllabic. But by the second budget cycle, they came with cross-tab multicolored binders because they knew someone would call the question. And, and that is the true uh, power of, repre- of a representative government. And you developed an alliance with Michelle, who's now the mayor of Boston. Well, let me just say something about the city council, you know, of which I had the honor of serving for uh, nearly a decade. That city council has produced uh, a historic mayor in Michelle Wu, uh, an attorney general in Andrea Campbell, and our second black female state senator in Lydia Edwards, and myself as a member of Congress. Um, so yes, it was um, Michelle. Uh, I, I think it would not be fair to characterize her as a mentee. She might say that, um, but uh, we're all very proud of her. And um, of course, Boston at this point has a long history of folks originally from Chicago coming mm-hmm. and advancing progressive change. And 
uh, Deval Patrick, myself, and Michelle were respectively. We'll get to that Chicago part and the Cincinnati part of your story when we come back. I'm Major Garrett, segment two of The Takeout coming your way in just one minute. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back. Ayanna Presley is our special guest, Congresswoman 7th District of Massachusetts. You've been about that. Tip O'Neill used to represent a good portion of what is now the 7th District. A little bit of footnote there. Uh, born in Cincinnati, spent time in Chicago. There are aspects of your childhood that uh, have been described in biographies as troubled, Yet you were also a cheerleader, a voice model, a debating mm-hmm. uh, champion or successful high school debater. Tell my audience a little bit about both the highs and lows of your childhood and how it informs your view of politics and what to do in positions of power. Sure. Well, you know, a child's first teacher is their parent and or are their parents. And I had uh, two extraordinary teachers and and both of my parents. Um, it has formidably shaped me. And my mother, I mean, one of the things I appreciate the most having growing up in a single parent home and, and being an only child is that I saw my mother's humanity. I saw her as a woman um, and not singularly as my parent. You know, most children don't have that experience until they're adult children, but it was sort of my mother and I versus the world. And so here I saw this brilliant black woman who would uh, train uh, men that were often uh, promoted over her and paid more. Uh, I saw my mother have to to leave me at home as a latchkey kid at a very young age. I'm always fearful that she could get in trouble for that, but she couldn't afford childcare. Um, I saw my mother um, have her medical pain uh, dismissed or delegitimized because there was often a lack of cultural competency and humility um, when she would be, you know, seeking uh, health care. Um, I saw my mother go back to work long before she should have after um, after a medical procedure um, because she didn't have paid leave. Mm-hmm. And so because I had these situations seeing my mother's humanity as a woman, um, that was an incredible education. But also in her forthrightness as one of my first teachers. She said to me, Ayana, to be black is a beautiful thing and something to be proud of, but you have been born into a struggle. And I have an expectation that you will do your part uh, in the work of liberation. 
of black people and all marginalized people now. Sort of a heavy head trip, right? I was probably eight years old, but right. like I said, it was my mother and I versus the world. She never condescended me. She never patronized me. Um, and so that really um, so set the, something in the me. The day-to-day struggle, you and your mom, and then yes. the larger struggle she was trying, trying to communicate to you. The larger struggle she was communicating to me, and I do want to also acknowledge the contributions of my father as my teacher as well. Although my father, for a period of his life, had, like millions of Americans, uh, struggled with uh, substance use disorder and addiction and was in the throes of that. And because of that, he was in and out of the criminal legal system during my formative years. Incarcerated. Yes, but he... Uh, uh, wrote me faithfully. He sent me uh, the literary works of James Baldwin and Langston Hughes and Lorraine Hansberry and Gwendolyn Brooks. And so he really uh, formidably shaped my black consciousness as well. And then later in life bounced back. Yes, he did. And so having um, the experience of a loved one, a parent in particular, being incarcerated those many years, of course it was destabilizing. Um, there was a lot of shame and stigma that I carried with that. And so that experience has really also informed the work that I do in that space to ensure that substance use disorder is not criminalized, that uh, mental health, homelessness, poverty uh, is not criminalized, uh, and also to uh, legislate in a way to support uh, the successful reentry, whether it's housing justice, uh, wraparound services and supports, family reunification. Uh, my father, who I'm so very proud of and I do want to name both my parents my mother's name is Sandy may she rest in peace and power my father's name is Martin and he went on to attain uh, many advanced degrees and to become a college professor and a published author so I'm very proud of him so I think you know in summary my lived experience is that of everyone else it's intersectional it's complex it's nuanced and I bring uh, the totality and the confluence of my experiences both personally and professionally uh, to this work And when you encounter someone who might say all these things you say about rebalancing or equity, politics is a zero-sum game. You gain, mean I lose. What would you say to that? Uh, That's not true. Uh, Unfortunately, we do have very much uh, a cultural mindset of scarcity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there become these... uh, hierarchies of, of hurt that are perpetuated um, or, uh, you know, this sort of psychology that there's this pie and uh, there's only so much to go around. But it's been my experience as someone who's been organizing and in the work of electoral politics since the age of 10 uh, and professionally since the age of 19, again, an aide uh, for 16 years, four in the House, 11 in the Senate, a city council for eight, and now four years in, in Congress, that we don't suffer uh, from a deficit of resource. Of course, you saw during the pandemic there were many things that government stepped in to do that right. for decades we've said we did not have the resource to do. So we're, we're, it's not a deficit of resource, but I do believe that there is a deficit of empathy, uh, and that is certainly uh, you know something that I'm seeking to change is that instead of a politic of transaction, that we usher in a politic of transformation. And finally, I would say the struggles that my mother and I experienced as she was struggling to make ends meet, raising me uh, alone. For a number of years, I thought that we were marked in some kind of way. It seemed that everyone I knew and that was proximate to me in my community was having the same struggles. And I I thought we were just marked. But uh, 
upon greater education, I realized that uh, this was, uh, we were in the residual aftermath of the war on drugs, um, you know, experiencing the policy violence, very precise violence of things like redlining. Um, and so in, in the residual aftermath of welfare reform, all of these things. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be in Washington, because I came to realize that every inequity, every disparity, every racial injustice is one that was legislated or codified in a budget. And most of that started in federal policy. And, and then so, it trickles down. Exactly. And so if we know what it is to live in a present or in the aftermath of legislated hurt and harm, you know, what I want to do is legislate equity, legislate healing, and legislate justice. And I do believe it's possible. There were, as you mentioned, a lot of interventions during the pandemic that people said couldn't be done, but were done. But many of them are on the wane or gone. How does that strike you, and what does that tell you about their ability to come back or the necessity or the need for them to come back? You know, I think that um, in, the, in the immediate aftermath, there's a bit of selective amnesia here mm-hmm. because um, at the height of the most high-profile instances of police brutality um, against uh, black Americans, black men in particular, against the backdrop of a pandemic that was hitting the most marginalized communities the hardest um, because of of decades of unjust budgets, um, of of proximity to emissions, unequal access to healthcare, I mean, you name it. They said that we were in the midst of a racial reckoning. Mm Um, and I take issue with that because you don't I don't like that phrase. Well, I've seen no evidence of it. Um, you know, I, I grew up uh, in my grandfather's storefront church on the south side of Chicago, um, and so um, reckoning means something deeper and that something hasn't deep been that, that's commiserate to the hurt and harm that has been caused really for centuries. And so, um, the, everyone spoke about the fact that the pandemic had shine, shone a light on and exacerbated every. Uh, injustice and disparity. And so now on the other side of that, so what are we going to do about it? We can't just default to an unjust status quo. Um, And so uh, many of those things... Go back to normal. We can't, no. I mean, if if people aren't clear after a pandemic about how important childcare is, that is not a gender issue. That is a family issue. That is a workforce issue. Um, You know, childcare is is, is, as much about uh, our families as it is about the GDP. Right. And who's a frontline worker and why? And what are they subjected to? And what are the risks? And what what are the rewards? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or... um, But do you sense that 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 impetus is receding? And the awareness and appreciation of that time is receding? And if so, do you worry about that? Of course I worry about it. And it's why, you know, I continue to move with deliberate urgency. Uh, and I remain so squarely focused on policy because it is my love language. You know, it's it's not just a T-shirt, though I do sell it. Um, <laughs> but but it, but, uh, but but policy is my love language, and so I believe that is the way to undo centuries of harm, but also to chart a more equitable path forward. And that's why I have taken on mm-hmm. in earnest so stridently issues like student debt cancellation because that is a racial justice issue. And we will get to that in just a minute because we love policy on this show. <laughs> I've never described it as our takeout love language, but it's pretty. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Segment three of the take. I'll come to you in just a second. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. 
and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to the Tega. Welcome back to Ben's Chili Bowl. I am a Presley Congresswoman from the 7th District of Massachusetts. Our guest... Ben's Chili Bowl is famous for its half smokes and its chilies and having just polished mine off off camera because I'm not stupid. Uh, deservedly so. The fame precedes it and will always continue at Ben's Chili Bowl. So as we went to break, you were talking about student loans. I was outside the Supreme Court very recently when Supreme Court struck down President Biden's effort to forgive student loan forgiveness. Your evaluation of A, that decision and what President Biden announced thereafter, a sort of plan B to try to remedy what the Supreme Court did? Well, let me take it back a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, um, recently I've, I've asked people instead of, I mean, I want people to just call me Ayana first off, mm -hmm. but if they do want to address me with my title, I, I would rather be called a representative uh, than a congresswoman mm -hmm. um, because that is what I really seek to be is a true representative uh, of my district and then to advance responsive solutions to their hurt but also to advance solutions that meet their needs but advance their dreams. Student debt cancellation is an issue that when it was first sort of introduced into the like lexicon, people really tried to marginalize it and fringe it. People questioned whether or not the president had authority. They questioned whether or not student debt cancellation would be regressive in impact and only benefit affluent uh, white graduate students ostensibly. Many Republicans said exactly that. Sure, I know all... Why should all, we bail out white co uh, graduate students? Yeah. Well, those were harmful uh, mischaracterizations um, and an inaccurate narrative. And so for two years, um, despite all those naysayers and those efforts to really marginalize the issue because I want to be a representative, we were in communication and conversation and dialogue. And I've carried those stories with me. You know, with the White House. And to the White House. Yes. I mean, you know, senior citizens, elders on Social Security and fixed incomes who cry to me, I'm going to die still paying on these loans. I owe more now than I took out. A 76-year-old constituent whose benefits had been garnished because they defaulted on those loans and we're still paying them. You know, young families struggling to pay child care. Massachusetts has the third highest cost of child care in the country. We're working on it. Um, but again, we don't have universal child care as a country. So young families struggling to meet child care costs, uh, to pay for rent. Black and brown borrowers disproportionately burdened by this only $2 trillion crisis. It's very much a racial justice issue. If you look at black Americans um, specifically, we've been locked out of every major federal relief program in this country, uh, from the Homestead Act to the GI Bill, targeted by redlining. And so there, although there have been gains made by black Americans, including in my own family, we've grown income, but not wealth. And so black 
and brown students borrow and default at higher rates. And then finally, there's... I interviewed as a part of my coverage of this story a young man who had just graduated from Howard. He had three siblings. All of them had taken out student loan debt. Who said exactly that. We have to take out loans because that's how we get into college. That's how we get to the next rung and to place our feet on that ladder higher... We need to take out some debt to do it. That's right. And when you talk about that rung, you know, we have, we, we um, purport that this is a, a meritocracy. And in that meritocracy, that education is the great equalizer. But we know that has only begun, it has only been uh, pulled farther and farther out of reach. Uh, and so we worked for two years to make the case, to show the face of this crisis, to build this coalition of grassroots borrowers, civil rights organizations, labor union presidents. And the president was responsive to that coalition and used executive action. And the reason we were pushing for executive action is not only because he had multiple mechanisms and the legal authority to do it, um, but is because we knew it would be the most effective, efficient, and impactful way to bring about this transformative relief. And so the president acted, and, um, and I vehemently uh, disagree uh, with the ruling by the Supreme Court. I think it is uh, tone deaf. I think it is callous. I think it is not in keeping with the will of the majority of the people. Uh, and moreover, as we have found increasingly so with the Supreme Court, unprecedented has been the word du jour, and not for the right reasons. They continue to make history for all the wrong reasons. Uh, They are legislating from the bench. And so President Biden's executive action, which again, I wish the Supreme Court would have just uh, applied the law because the legal case was sound there, uh, would grant relief for some 43 million Americans burdened by this debt. And uh, Immediately after the action, myself and Senator Warren went on, the, on a road trip. Mm-hmm. Um, she played Patsy Cline. I pushed for a new addition. Uh, to make sure that it's all nice <laughs> to make sure that all eligible borrowers um, signed up, and so in very short order, some 26 million yep. people signed up for this transformative uh, relief, uh, and 16 million have already been approved. And the executive action that uh, the president um, signed with the stroke of a pen, would have provided relief. Right. None with, received anything because right. it was blocked in the Correct. course almost immediately. But, but what it would have but done... anticipation. Exactly. What it would have done was grant relief for Pell Grant recipients up to $20,000 and for non-Pell Grant recipients, $10,000. And so I disagree with the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, President Biden still needs to deliver this transformative relief. It is very consequential. Um, there is a, a great panic, financial panic uh, for borrowers, particularly with uh, payments uh, set to resume October 1st. In the fall. That was another thing that we had fought for during the pandemic was a pause on those payments. And we heard from families about... uh, Paul set in motion we should remind our listeners and viewers by President Trump. Correct. And extended by President Biden. That is also correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the point here is um, it's deeply consequential. Again, you're talking about a $2 trillion crisis. And so uh, when we spoke to people who had 
uh, benefited from that pause. Some people became first-generation homeowners. Some people were able to remain safely housed, purchase essential goods. So we know how impactful that that pause has been. And there's financial panic about those payments resuming. And so what I'm calling on, and I do thank Secretary Cardona and President Biden for uh, coming out and responding quickly and speaking to borrowers and letting them know this fight is not over. It's very important that we move swiftly in that fight um, and that the response is one that is uh, felt. And that is why I'm still calling on them to deliver this relief at $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients and $10,000 for non-Pell Grant recipients um, because it's just deeply consequential. And moreover, we know the Supreme Court, which have been enlisted as co-conspirators in this far-right extremist agenda from the lower courts to to the Supreme Court, to the highest court, that the other reason that they obstructed this is political reasons. Not only is this relief deeply needed and long overdue, it is very popular. It was a motivating issue uh, in the midterms, along with reproductive justice, bodily autonomy, and freedom. This was a motivating issue to the poll. And so this relief is sorely needed, uh, and it is also very popular. And so I'm calling on President Biden and Secretary Cardona to deliver the relief to the coalition that delivered them to the White House. Do you think the president will receive credit for trying or blame for failing on this issue? Well, we're elected officials, and so, <laughs> you know, those things, those things cut both ways. Um, but Maybe for this coalition you're talking about, uh, does he get credit for trying and blocked by the Supreme Court? And what's the politics? Democrats yeah. get credit when we deliver, when people know what we're doing, not because they read a press release, but because they feel it. Mm. And, and that's on, on things like the child tax credit or this transformative uh, student uh, debt relief, which I am still calling on the White House to deliver on because a promise is a promise. And if it's undelivered, then it will end badly politically. I think the most important thing is not about what the impact will be politically. I think the most important thing is the catastrophic impact that this will have on families and communities and our economy, because the promise of all of us is being choked by this nearly $2 trillion crisis. People from every walk of life. And real quickly, for those who say, I paid but my yes, student... But yes, there will be political implications right. as well, For those who would say, and I'll let you answer this on the other side of the break, so I'll just set the question up and then we'll go to break. For those who would say, hey, I paid off my student debt. Why should someone else get a benefit because I was frugal enough or I was well-positioned enough? I'm going to let that question sit out there. Ina Presley is our special guest, representative of <laughs> Massachusetts 7th Congressional District. I will remember Let's that go. henceforth. <laughs> Segment for the take. I'll come to you in just a second. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. Representative Presley is with us. Uh, Answer the question I posed to you. What about those who say, hey, I paid it off. Why is someone else getting a break? Major, you ready for this? Mm Mm-hmm. I took out loans. Mm-hmm. I defaulted on those loans. It took me 20 plus years to pay those loans back. Mm-hmm. And yet I still have been on the front lines of this fight. First, we should always want better for the next generation. Mm-hmm. And as a lawmaker, my job is to solve problems. You know, and this is a very serious, burdensome problem. Again, affecting people from every walk of life. And then finally, Usually people are offering a comparison that is not an apples-to-apples comparison. It's not even apples-to-oranges. Again, you can't say we live in a meritocracy. Education is life's great equalizer when we have put that further and further out of reach. And so we have to be dual track here. Yes, we have to expand Pell Grants. We have to invest in HBCUs. We have to invest in vocational education. And we need to cancel student debt. We need to offer real relief. And notice, I've never called it forgiveness. And the reason why I've never called it forgiveness is because borrowers have only done what we told them that they need to do in order to have social and economic mobility in this society. You have got to pursue higher education. Meritocracy, education is the equalizer. So I don't call it forgiveness because borrowers have done nothing wrong and they need to be forgiven forgiven. anything, Mm -hmm. but they are in need of and do deserve transformative relief. I want to ask you a couple of political questions, then we'll get back to the Supreme Court. So politically, evaluate President Biden's re-election campaign so far. I think that the president has made a compelling case, a compelling legislated case. I mean, despite the the landscape of Washington at this time, um, and immediately prior to that, during the pandemic, I mean, look, I said unprecedented has been the word du jour for the last four years, four years, at an unprecedented time uh, where we were experiencing challenges unlike anything amidst a, of a pandemic and all the ways in which it disrupted our economy and, um, and quality of life, he met the moment. Um, and the fact that we have been able to advance really impactful legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, CHIPS legislation. So I think, uh, but to your earlier I think observation, he's made a compelling people case. People need to feel that. But our work isn't done. And, and I tell you what, I know what my chances are in a Biden-Harris administration uh, because this Republican, governing under this Republican majority in the House, it is clear to me that chaos is not the symptom, it is the strategy. Uh, And they uh, definitely uh, continue to advance what I would characterize as policy violence in their anti-abortion legislation. They are anti-woman, they're anti-worker, they're anti-immigrant. My Republican colleagues, I think, make the affirmative case for Democrats every single day with a very cruel, callous, and clueless way, an ineffective way with which they have been governing. So I think uh, the Biden-Harris administration makes a compelling case, but we have more work to do. We still need paid leave. We need to make the child tax credit permanent. We still need universal child care. So there is still work to be done. Any doubt in your mind that President Biden will be the Democratic nominee in 2024? No. Okay. Evaluate Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s run for the nomination. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> come on, Major. I mean, I, I, is it I, serious? Let me say this. Why I follow, swallow my French fry here? Um, in all seriousness, um, look, this is a, a democracy. I'm supportive of you know. The, it takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there, um, you know. So. And he'll make he'll. It's up to every candidate but to put forward a salient vision and to make their case to the electorate. Let me be and more so precise. There are plenty of Democrats who believe that he is a chaos agent backed by Republicans who want to cause trouble for the president. Do you agree I, with that? Listen, I won't get into conspiracy theories and I won't speculate in that way. I'm no pundit. Um, all I can tell you is that I do believe uh, that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee, uh, and I'm focused for the rest of uh, this session. Uh, in making the affirmative case for Democrats. And again, we make that case when we deliver. Not when the electorate knows what we do based on a press release, but when they can feel the impact of our advocacy on their behalf. How about Cornell West's third party run? I respect, you know, Dr. West. We've shared uh, many, many stages. I'm sure you have. I'm sure and, you have. Uh, and again, you know, I... I each lots of Democrats fear any third-party candidacy siphons votes from the president, I'm, I'm, makes it more jeopardizing for him, hurts his prospects. I'm no, I'm no pundit. But Policy but you're is my love, love language. In, I'm a lawmaker, and that's what I remain squarely focused on. And, you know, every candidate will have their opportunity to make the case to the electorate. Mm -hmm. How about No Labels, which doesn't have a candidate, but is this shadow organization trying to put a dream ticket third-party thing together? A lot of Democrats are concerned about that. Are you? What I'm focused on is the Democrats making the affirmative case mm -hmm. and people feeling the impact of our advocacy on their behalf. What I want is for people to feel seen. Um, you know, I've been, again, working in electoral politics uh, since the age of 10 years old. I've been a proud uh, Democrat uh, my entire life. Uh, and because I'm a proud Democrat, that means uh, I fight hard to make sure that all the values we espouse, that we actually practice. And so there's still a lot of work that we, that we need to do. Um, I make it a point uh, to door knock, to engage, to do the work of mobilization, not just in an election cycle. And that's what the Democrats have to do as well. We can't just engage people uh, from a dynamic of transaction. Before I ask anyone for their vote, I'm asking them about their lives. And so I think it's important that every person um, feels seen, uh, they feel centered, and that we are advancing solutions that are responsive to their needs. Is this Supreme Court, as currently constituted, legitimate? The Supreme Court uh, right now is far-right, extreme, and imbalanced. Uh, the good news is there are things that we can do to restore balance, is it ethical? fairness, and integrity. Um, I think that there are a lot of ethical things in question um, uh, by uh, more than one uh, justice uh, when you're talking about moneyed interests, uh, you know, influencing uh, decisions, uh, unethical business uh, transactions. I do think that we need a binding ethics code of conduct. I think we need reform, and I think we need expansion. And again, this is one of those ideas that, just like student debt cancellation to some, seemed marginal um, and, and unlikely. But there is precedent for this. Congress has expanded the courts uh, six times before. And so I'm a part of a, a growing 
growing coalition of groups representing the most marginalized who have been the most harmed by the Supreme Court, a just majority, to build consensus and educate the masses um, about this. How much larger does it need to be? Well, you know, we're banding about, you know, different different things there. But I think at the end of the day, just by expansion, we will see greater balance and fairness. But then legislatively, we do need a binding code of ethics um, to restore the integrity of the courts. You know, right now, they're legislating from the bench. They're operating like some super uh, legislature that has not been, uh, but that's not accountable to the people because of these lifetime appointments. So I think everything needs to be on the table from uh, ethics guidelines to term limits to reform and expansion. That is the voice of Ayanna Presley, representative of the 7th District <laughs> of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. That's right. So concludes the takeout. Stay tuned for your takeout outtake especial. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to your takeout outtake especial. Welcome to Ben's Chili Bowl, H Street Corridor. We'll get to the U Street one and all of its famous historical residents in D.C. In due course, I promise you, Anna Presley, representative of the 7th District of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, is our special guest. So, because you worked on the Hill, because you worked for a member of the House and a member of the Senate, I've known many people who have done that work, some who have run for office and succeeded, some who have run for office and failed. When you were in that House office or that Senate office, did you think the work was easier than it actually was? Did you have a sense that I could do this and it would, if only I was in there, I could do Because I'm just curious what your orientation was to what you thought the difficulty and that learning curve was when you were an aide as compared to being the person herself. It was an incredible tutelage to be approximate uh, to Congressman uh, Kennedy, Joseph P. Kennedy II, and Senator Kerry, respectively. But I will say, being on the other side, I had not a clue. Um, you know, not at all. There's and, a lot and, more. There's a lot more. And in fact, when I served on the Oversight Committee in my freshman term, uh, Secretary Kerry came before um, the committee and before he began his testimony. And of course, we're still very much in touch. Mm -hmm. He's sort of a political dad to me. And before he began his testimony, I said, I just would like to take a moment to say, I apologize because I was his scheduler mm -hmm. for seven years. And so, um, and we, 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 you know, we had a, a great, a great laugh in that moment. So, mm -hmm. so it was a great education, but of course there were a lot of, a lot of blind spots and things I never could have anticipated now actually being the member. But I also, never would have thought I would have been a member. Mm -hmm. I did not think that that was the path my life was going. I really enjoyed 
being the person behind the person. And actually, that's something that I really uh, a champion is for people that want to be politically involved. Your options are not just to vote um, or to run for office. There are very rewarding and meaningful opportunities um, at every level. And I loved being an aide. How did you make that transition from behind to in front? It had to be a journey. It was a journey, and I was also recruited. Um, did you so find things within yourself you weren't sure existed? Absolutely. You know, this um, I, I've summoned things uh, deep within. Um, I don't want to say that I'm resilient because I, I do think that resilience can sometimes be overrated and romanticized. Resilience comes from great hardship. Um, but what I do know is that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm a deeply spiritual person um, and, uh, you know, believe in, in alignments. Um, and, you know, my faith guides me in this work. And um, I believe I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, my mother, may she rest in peace and power, was the one person who would not be surprised by where I am um, because she... Uh, she proclaimed since I was born in the month of February that I was meant to make uh, black history uh, and also um, believed that I would one day serve in Congress. And I thought that she was just uh, someone with an only child mm -hmm. and who thought that the sun rose and set on her baby girl. So. It has been said you are destined for the U.S. Senate. Is that true? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm just following the work. You know, that's it. And so far that has served me well in life. You know, the work that I started on the Boston City Council in the micro to be able to have that connective thread and now champion that work and do it deeper on a macro level federally. Because as I said, federal policy has really been the origin story for so many of our injustices. And so I'm just following the work. I've, I've never obsessed on trajectory or title or position. Uh, and so far that's served me well. So I'm just head down doing the movement building work and doing the legislative work. Okay, we say this is the fun and games part of the program because we have three questions we ask everyone who's ever come to the takeout microphone. Okay. Take these questions. They're not hard ones. They're enjoyable ones. In okay. whichever order you prefer. Okay. I read them this way. Uh, most influential book in your life and why. Okay. All-time favorite movie. And if you're on a long flight or a long drive and you're really going to enjoy some music, I mean really enjoy some music, what kind of artist or genre is it most likely to be? Okay, I'll work backwards. Almost everyone uh, does. Okay, I love um, uh, Motown, anything Motown era, and R&B, definitely. More recently, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I'm not a good flyer. Mm -hmm. And so okay. I've been researching every sort of tool that could, that could support me. Yes, I do. To Boston, for yeah. example? No, I, okay. I do fly. you got to fly to Boston, um, right. And, uh, and so I've been listening to uh, some opera. Now, I couldn't name them, but I will tell you that I have been enjoying that. But, but my, you know, my heart lives mm -hmm. with, with R&B, okay? okay? Particularly 90s R&B. Okay, um, and then uh, as far as a book, you know, there are, there are many books that have, have shaped me. I'll lift two really quickly. One is one that I read every day. And as I said, I'm a woman of faith and grew up in my grandfather's storefront church on the south side um, of Chicago. And so I do read the president's devotionals. I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, but I do. My husband and I, we use that for our prayer, reflection and meditation every single day. And even though we have read it 
through, you know, probably at this point, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 times, right. we still will go to the dates mm-hmm. and, and read uh, that affirmation, that spiritual reflection for the day. That was written by uh, Joshua uh, Du Bois, mm-hmm. um, who uh, was sort of a spiritual steward for President Obama. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so President's Devotionals, I read that every day. And then um, a book that was really game changing for me is um, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by, uh, by Maya Angelou. Um, I, you know, as you said, I, you know, had my share of troubles, particularly in my formative years. And one of them is that I'm a survivor. I'm a survivor of, um, of sexual abuse. And um, that book saved my life. And I, I do believe in the power of books to save lives, uh, which is why I'm so uh, dismayed um, by the bans that are happening throughout the country right now. But when I read I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, that was the first time I knew as a child who was being abused and carrying great shame about it that, they're, um, that I wasn't alone. And so that, that is the power of books, I think, to stoke consciousness and form consciousness, to create safe space, um, and to build community. And so that was when I knew I wasn't alone. Okay, so 90s R&B, President's Devotional, uh, I Know Why the Cage Bird sings. sings. And movie. One of your favorite movies. Okay, I'm going to take it. I have so many. It's hard. My husband and I are big movie people. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually, I'm going to take it way, way back. Have you ever seen a movie called The Imitation of Life? No. Okay, that's a very powerful movie. That's one. It's all about um, identity, and it's about a young woman who's passing. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very light complexion, and she's, um, she's passing uh, as a white woman for most of her life, uh, and it's very painful for her black mother. Lana Turner's in the movie. Mm, okay. Uh, it's an incredible movie. So Imitation of Life, it were to take it really way back. Um, and then I do like a good, you know, rom-com or romance movie. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one movie my husband and I love and we rewatch together every Valentine's Day is a movie that was filmed in Chicago and it's called Love Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it um, starred Lorenz Tate and Nia Long. Very good. Ayanna Presley, representative of the 7th District of the yes. Commonwealth of Massachusetts. <laughs> it's been great to hang out with you. Thank Thanks for joining you. us at Ben's Chili Bowl. Thanks for bringing our show to Ben's Chili Bowl and we'll see you around Washington. All right. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.